these people in here have been through an awful lot. And I would allow that they've earned the right to hear the truth. Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid and the only podcast to know that you're not sated until you're quaded. I am Jeb Lund, and I'm not letting my tuberculosis stop me from dual-wielding handguns, and I'm here with a phantom woman cracking an egg into a drinking glass, Sarah D. Bunting. Fuego! <laughs> I'm so glad you made a note of that, because that was in there a lot. <laughs> it was. And not in an unpleasing way, I didn't feel. Well, yes. I mean, it was pleasing, but in the sense that it was like somebody was just hitting a soundboard button. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, in case you can't tell from the one word of Spanish here as a clue, we watched The Alamo from 2004, and I feel like we're going to be somewhat at odds because before we started recording, you said something positive about this, and I don't have that at all. Wow, okay. I mean, it's not an unalloyed positive, but I think this is definitely one of those times when I went in expecting to hate the thing, and then when I was not actively infuriated at having, you know, chosen to do this myself <laughs> affirmatively. Uh, I was impressed in certain ways and a question mark, but this could be just a grading on a curve thing. Mm. All uh, right. Well, we're going to have to get into that but before we do but that. But I'm no history major. So right. before we do that, speaking of uh, an unpleasant thing that we hate, do we have any pod business? <laughs> No, we don't. Yay! Although, if you would like to hear us listening to an unpleasant thing we did not like, you can listen to our Patreon bonus, where we actually sat down and listened to a whole episode of The Renaissance. We did. <sighs> At regular one-time speed for some of it, some of the time. Not a lot of it. Nope. Can't do it. Okay, plot summary. The Alamo. Dateline, 1836. The aftermath of the Battle of the Alamo. In case you don't know about the Alamo and might have watched this movie in suspense, it's spoiler alert time. They all die. <laughs> Flashback to a year earlier. Sam Houston, Dennis Quaid, is drinking at a fancy pants gathering trying to get people to immigrate to Texas by crossing over the poorest southern border and taking land that belongs to Mexico so they can drop their anchor babies there. It's clear from his voluminous alcoholism that America is not sending their best. Houston meets Davy Crockett, Billy Bob Thornton, at the gathering. Great! Cut to a meeting of the provisional Texas government. We see Houston being relieved of command by idiots and doubters via the democratic process. It's bad. Thankfully, Mexican President and Generalissimo Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana is in this movie to show you that tyranny is even more bad by making him a fat, foppish sadist and a leering pervert. Next, Houston tells serial fraudster and slaver Jim Bowie, Jason Patrick, to go destroy the Alamo fortifications and retrieve the cannons there to repurpose them for more valuable strategic outcomes. Meanwhile, the Texas government sends William Barrett Travis, Patrick, the dad from The Conjuring Wilson, to the Alamo, where he is put in command after the colonel there has to leave to return some videotapes. Travis is a fussy nerd, and a chunk of the movie is dedicated to showing him grow as a person by coming to respect serial criminal and slaver Jim Bowie, who commands a group of loyal drunken louts. Travis sends for reinforcements, but Houston declines to send any and refuses to let Travis's courier return with the bad news. Houston knows that his army can't defeat Santa Ana's forces in the open field, and he intends to use the defense of the Alamo to bleed that army white while keeping them bogged down in a strategically less valuable location. 
A few enforcements arrive, but the Alamo is undermanned and undergunned, and we watch as this ragtag bunch comes to develop mutual respect for one another. Santa Ana repeatedly bombards the fort, coming off like a bloated popinjay, while Davy Crockett nearly kills him with a long rifle shot, and Travis shows that he's not afraid to recycle cannonballs. <laughs> Despite moving scenes with Thornton's Crockett exploring themes of legend versus reality and a monologue about Americans committing mass slaughter and then French-fried cannibalism, we mostly watch the dad from The Conjuring become less of a dork while we are moved by the love of a mestizo girl for fatally consumptive crook and slaver Jim Bowie. Santa Ana takes the Alamo and kills everyone except for an equally stupid and ahistorical scene in which Davy Crockett is executed by a mass bayoneting after mouthing off to Santa Ana so bravely that his commanders are not only clearly more impressed by their enemy than they are by him, but they also press for leniency. No dice. Then, as if tacked on like a where-are-they-now epilogue, we return to Quaid's Houston as he retreats further east, drawing Santa Ana in pursuit, waiting for him to make a mistake. We get a speech about how he was inspired by Wellington's determination to force Napoleon to meet him on favorable ground. Less time is spent emphasizing Santa Ana's unforced error of dividing his army, and almost none at all is spent on the fact that Houston's Fabian strategy was meant to extend Santa Ana's already strained and deeply mismanaged supply lines, because poor logistics alone can set the stage for the destruction of a superior force even before you show up. Houston then defeats Santa Ana at San Jacinto, wherein the bloated, vain, sex-creep commander is further revealed to be a yellow-bellied Nancy boy, and the forces of liberty prevail, granting autonomy to a group of parasitic foreign slavers who settled in a sovereign state's territory and immediately began agitating for its overthrow, largely because it had outlawed owning other human beings and their children and their children's children in perpetuity. As Mel Gibson once screamed in a movie in which the Battle of Sterling Bridge did not actually have a bridge, freedom. Well done. So that's what happened, and several things that did not. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you missed anything. That feels very complete. Yes. Uh, well, you had to listen through the stops and starts, but thankfully it was much faster for the listeners at home. <laughs> yeah, this movie was directed by John Lee Hancock, no relation, uh, who also brought us The Rookie, and once again... We have a movie whose runtime suggests that it needed to take four or five things off. Sounds like you would have started with Slaver Jim Bowie and his knife. Yeah, I just, uh, I mean, even the way that they include him, which, look, my moral beef with him does not necessarily make it a better story. Go ahead and include him. But like pretty much the minute that we meet him, he pulls out the eponymous knife. And I was like, uh oh, I hope General Beauregard Slurpee doesn't show up. Like, just <laughs> give it a minute. <laughs> yeah. And there's a missed the video game quality like swing that happens at the same time. It's uh, I don't know. The movie wants to say a lot of things about um, legend versus reality, like you were saying, but that is not one of its more effective attempts in that direction, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I actually was so exercised by how frustrating the movie was in terms of not really doing what it wanted to do and doing a bad job of the things it included that I wound up just writing like three different essays and then deleting most of them when I woke up the next day because I was like, I already have to read the plot summary. We don't want to hear like a whole audio essay, but like talk about trying to demythologize the mythology and just ending up with it anyway. Or ending up with a different mythology. I mean, I think that you and I are actually more or less in the same spot with this movie we just got here from two different 
directions because you just mentioned that there's, you know, you're frustrated by what this movie thinks it is versus what it is and what it's trying mm-hmm. to do versus what it manages to do. Uh, and as I said before, because I was expecting just a stillborn beached carcass of a thing, and I didn't entirely get that. I mean, it's definitely bloated. And the tacked on Sam Houston, fucking Dennis Quaid struggling to control the horse actor while trying to get the words Remember the Alamo out <laughs> through the <laughs> elementary dilemmas um, clenched anus is really something like, oh, my God, get another horse, please. It was painful to watch. <laughs> But uh, like there are a lot of problems with it. My notes during that sequence were like, shouldn't this movie be over? Like the Davy Crockett coda, excuse me, David Crockett coda was pandery enough, but it did have its certain effective sequences. And if it had stopped at like an hour 57, Mm -hmm. that would have been one thing. But uh, I just like every time David Crockett was on screen, I just kept thinking, like, why isn't this movie over his shoulder? Because not only is Billy Bob Thornton not, he's like the one person on screen with any substantive amount of lines who doesn't seem to be completely overawed by the project and all the, mm-hmm. all the ghosts that he's walking through. But that story and his apparent awareness of the gap between man and myth would be much more interesting, would have focused shit up way better. But because you have this same director who is always going to tack towards massive mythic set piece kind of things, and you have this gigantic budget as well, like, didn't this cost close to $100 million? Something like that. And it made about $25 million. Mm, Yeah. And uh, sometimes you can see where the money went. And usually you're like, why? Like, why is this climactic, quote unquote, battle sequence, whose outcome we have known for like two centuries, that was three quarters of the budget? Like, why are we doing this? Just cut away. They're going to breach the wall. We know what happens. If you have to do the Sam Houston coda, like, start that now. I found myself very frustrated by seeing that there was a good movie and the capacity for good storytelling via Crockett and Billy Bob Thornton's performance that, uh, just we weren't going to get that. So, yeah, that was a problem. There's a bit in the Sam Houston coda where he's explaining, you know, Wellington searching for the ground that he knew he needed. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit where Quaid as Houston walks out into this field and he's alone and you can see him visualizing this mm-hmm. is the place. And earlier he made a comment about not knowing the name of the field where you know Wellington fought until obviously after when the name becomes famous it becomes an eponym and he just says do you have a name and i thought perfect go to black yeah right there and then you just do like a, a little title card explaining what happens santa Ana divided his forces sam houston defeated them at the battle of san jacinto and yeah. we're good but like that was poetic and beautiful and it was like know that that's good stop now oh no okay yeah it just didn't know I think it's set out to be this thing, and I think this is the kind of this thing that gets sold when you roll into the pitch meeting and you're like, let's remember the Alamo. But, I mean, there was some beautiful shot making. There were some Mm -hmm. wonderful scenes. Jason Patrick, who can 
like if he's not cast correctly, that can just bung the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He might be playing a consumptive slaver, but he's doing it well. I kind of wished it was just like a two-hander between him and Thornton's Crockett, just like waiting that like they know they're going to die. And they're just like mm-hmm. waiting there and shooting the shit. And the best scenes I thought were between just two people. I mean, Patrick Wilson's character is a dimension and a half tops, but that guy knows how to act. So he's like recycling a cannonball with a while a fife is playing. And it's like, okay, (laughs) don't make Patrick Wilson do this. But also, at least it's Patrick Wilson doing it. But my frustration was that there was a good movie in here that didn't know how to be born. And it seems obvious to us now. Yeah. I mean, it's $100 million. It's a shame. Like, those sideburns are not good enough for that to be the budget. (laughs) Sorry. No, and in my longer essay bit, the thing that I, I said at the beginning was, you know, for the thing that this is trying to be in terms of like Hollywood and maximizing eyeballs, et cetera, it's a 10 out of 10. But the thing that it's trying to be in the most reductive sense that way is creating a recent iteration of a well-known, well-told story and attempting to create the definitive one by using the greatest amount of state-of-the-art technical and structural accuracy, right? Like, if you didn't have better special effects than the previous version of the Alamo, which was 44 years before that, mm-hmm. there wouldn't really be a point. Although, like, that previous one is, is such a Cold War product that it's ridiculous, but... <laughs> You know, you're just trying to update it. And like, I get that. And if you just look at the movie that way, like, oh, well, the money went to making sure that the death looked really good. Mm -hmm. Then I get it. But everything else about how they're using that money and recreating this this authentic death is so misbegotten around the periphery. Like the, the one that really got me is the fact that like they keep using like Celtic wind instrument for these Texans Mm -hmm. and then for the the bad guys the mexicans they've got uh like nothing says definitively mexican to me like deep trilling wood pipes in a way that's like them's apache music the apaches is coming it's like no these are different people like you can't just like i'm surprised that they didn't just start doing a dun 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 like tom tom noise throughout it because it just was like well i I don't i don't know how we make it sound like there's an other out there wait wait i've got an idea indian music well or don't distinguish amongst them at all because at that point texians are an occupying force in what is still mexico if i'm not mistaken which i probably am i'm just watching the thing to be entertained like i don't need the minutiae but like they have different uniforms and they're not played by billy bob thornton yeah it's kind of a giveaway when billy bob's not there yeah we know that this is a different like we see the epaulets if this is for the benefit of the sight impaired, still find a different way. It's like every time a show goes to Paris, they're like, oh, here's the fucking accordion. Like, guys, find another way. <laughs> the Eiffel Tower is already on screen. This is not a radio program. Knock it the fuck off. We go now to ancient Greece, and for some reason, mandolin music. <laughs> like, okay. Um, but there's a Doric column right there. Who is this for? Every part of it is just so, I mean, the other one that stuck with me is like, there are no Criollos in this world. It's all this sort of like mestizo Tex-Mex looking Mexican population. And you're mm-hmm. like, no, there were going to be, there were Indios there. There were very, very European white commanders there. But because we're all Americans and we're watching it and we've got the American perspective, we're like, 
that's Apache music and those folks is Mexican, you know, and I just come on, try harder. That was like my one recurring note throughout everyone I took was just like appending everything with all caps. Try harder. My recurring note was, why isn't this scene over? And it's not because I was necessarily <laughs> bored all the time, although sometimes I was bored. But again, this is the problem with trying to make an epic about an event whose very epic nature, you can't untangle the fact that the end of it is the only thing that we know. So you got to get to the cannonball factory faster. <laughs> there were some sequences that were just like, let's let Thornton and Patrick work that didn't need to be in there that I didn't mind. Like the mm -hmm. whole fiddling thing and the, you know... All of the other under fives looking around like, well, that's a hell of a thing like that should have annoyed me, but it didn't. They managed to sell it. Mm -hmm. But this story, I don't want to say lived and died, but I, I really think that it needed to get way smaller and it absolutely couldn't because they gave him ninety five million dollars. And this is what happens. So should we talk about contemporary reviews? Because a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, I have clips for. Um, as you might imagine, the response was overwhelmingly negative, except for Ebert, and we'll get to that. But uh, just to check in with some of our our favorite buddies, um, <laughs> Dessen Thompson from the WAPO in a review titled An Army Can't Save This wrote, the movie's just cheap semaphore, the Hollywood language, that is, of shorthand storytelling. Crockett is cool, Santa Ana is bad, Travis is a prig, and so on. With the notable exception of Thornton's Crockett, none of these characters engages you. The script, reportedly written by a small army, leaves them no room to maneuver. Uh, one uh, of that small army, just while we're talking quaint and full reunion properties, was uh, mm. Stephen Gagan, who wrote Traffic and won an Oscar for that. Old Hancocksy directed The Rookie, of course, and then uh, we have a few famous players that recur in the Quaid and Full acting core. Uh, a new commentator, but one I've, I've read quite a bit, so I included it, David Edelstein from Slate. I don't think we've quoted him here before, writes, Dennis Quaid has much worse luck as Houston. Houston could easily be the other villain of the piece, and neither Hancock nor Quaid seems to know what to do with him. Quaid drops his voice, pops his eyes, and looks like a man who hasn't moved his bowels in months. Had to read that just for you. Edelstein, our people. <laughs> yeah, he feels it. Call us. He goes on. The middle of the movie is pokey and unfocused and given the circumstances bizarrely lacking in urgency. The direction gives you time to ruminate on the dumb Hollywood touches, like the scene in which Travis petulantly fires his cannon at the Mexicans while Bowie is in the middle of a white flag negotiation, a moronic act of insubordination if it happened. It didn't. And then also, I think maybe a new name for this one, Elvis Mitchell of the New York Times wrote, the picture starts with some squabbling over the best way to conduct the Texas Revolution and attempt to add political context to the film or as close as it comes to that. As commander of Texas's army, Sam Houston sports a jaw set with either determination or rigor mortis, knows how he wants things done and doesn't care who objects. He is saddled with the impossible task of serving as the film's emotional anchor. His discomfort is contagious. It infects the entire movie. And then our buddy Raj wrote, and I'm just going to read the lead. Uh, most of his analysis is stuff that um, I think everybody could probably guess at from it or just from watching it and trying to look insanely hard on the bright side. But this lead is something else to me. The advance buzz on the Alamo was negative, And now I know why. This is a good movie. 
Conventional wisdom in Hollywood is that any movie named the Alamo must be simplistic and rousing, despite the fact that we already know all the defenders got killed. If we don't know it, we find out in the first scene. Here is a movie that captures the loneliness and dread of men waiting for two weeks for what they expect to be certain death, and it somehow succeeds in taking those pop culture brand names like Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie and giving them human form. Very generous. Yeah, very, very generous. You know, again, this was better than I thought it was, but that doesn't mean it's good. There are a few affecting scenes. There are a couple of set pieces that I was like, okay, that's nice to look at. That's handsome. It doesn't look cheap. I will say, and this is a pet peeve of mine um, about period pieces like they didn't go crazy with the besmirching of the extras with dirt like not everybody looks like someone boiled a cauldron of band-aids and sewed together what was left thank you (laughs) i appreciate that but that just sort of defensive pissy like it's because it's a good movie and you just watched it wrong like he doesn't do that often and i really don't love it when he does because i'm like who is that for like you're roger ebert we're all going to fall in line, but you don't you don't have to do that. You don't have to sort of plant a flag, as it were, for this, for the Alamo. I almost wonder if maybe this was the third week in a row where a movie he thought had been just brutally maligned before its release had come out and been better than the the trade press talk mm. about it. Yeah, yeah. Because I could see like getting his back up and like, I'm going to make sure that people go see this because... All this other narrative building around the movie was misrepresentative and completely unfair. Or he was in the same headspace that I was, where he's like, this is going to be a piece of shit. And then there's like a mildly affecting, for instance, audio collage of the men writing their last letters to their loved ones, which didn't work as well as it could have because it's on there with David Crockett plays the violin to the approbation of of all. Uh, regardless of allegiance. And then he has to sort of gently and ponderously arm the dying buoy. I mean, you need to pick one of those things and commit, but I can see it just expecting total garbage time and then clinging so tightly to the few moments that were well done in spite of themselves in this Mm -hmm. epic that, um, that you kind of I don't know, burst of vein in your forehead, (laughs) holding on too tight to the concept. I don't know. The other thing I could see, you know, in spite of my my bilious attitude toward (laughs) this movie, you know, I was a history major for like, you know, years before this movie came out, like the previous decade, I'd spent a lot of time reading American history. So I went into movies like this and was just like, oh, my God, fuck you. (laughs) Uh But by the standards of the time, this is. I don't want to say like woke, but like I think a lot of people who use that as a pejorative certainly would. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's it's a far more balanced and impeaching property than you would expect from the immediate post 9-11 American cinemascape. Yeah, that's a good point. In terms of being a post 9-11 atmosphere and also just that period in history, uh, at least pop culture history, you could still make something that was just ludicrously distortionate. Yeah. And it tried harder than not at all, which is still, you know, I think by the lights of that time, kind of a lot. Looking back at it now, you know, obviously I'm a little more disappointed by it because I've been 
you know, I've experienced an ensuing nearly two decades of media that has gotten more critical and incisive in looking back at the United States. But yeah, I could see Raj going in there and being like, well, fair play to them, right? They they tried to add a second dimension to these characters. I'm a little peeved that he's that enthusiastic about like two dimensions. Well, I'll be because yeah. the, the dad from The Conjuring is a nerd and a tight ass who loosens up. And then at some point you're like, oh, well, back home, he's a he's a womanizer and a drunk. And yeah. Like, well, that's... I mean, <laughs> he's cheating on The Conjuring with Insidious. So, yeah, I mean... Given what I think the character brief was on paper, I think Wilson did a really good job with it. And also that, like, you know, you have extras, like, with the wild lines dropped in that it's like, well, I'll be, he's one of us after all, or, like, almost like that. And you're just like, oh, my God, really? We got it. There was a key change in the music. We know what that means. Right. It it shows remarkable, remarkably little faith in the audience that like this thing that has been essentially the only thing going on for like a half an hour is something that we would miss. Yeah. A twist in. Like, oh wait, like I was in the lobby taking a piss. Did the gumption signifier happen? Like everybody calm down. Here's <laughs> another thing. I want to play a clip, which is uh, David Crockett tell talking to um Jim Bowie about like he adopted the affectation of the coonskin cap because of this stage play um and then they're just talking about myths and whatnot we often gig dennis quaid for if he's trying to be intimidating or wild-eyed uh for going to the sling blade the sling blade delivery and it's interesting to see you know actual sling blade show up and kind of have a much better sense of what he's supposed to be doing as a legendary figure than Dennis Quaid does. And we have a we have a clip to point that up to. But for now, Mr. Crockett. The truth is, I only started wearing that thing because that fella in that play they did about me. People expect things. Ain't it so? Can I ask you something? All right. Now, which was tougher? Jumping the Mississippi or riding that lightning bolt? Can you catch a cannonball? If it was just me, simple old David from Tennessee, I might drop over that wall some night and take my chances. But that Davy Crockett feller, they're all watching him. I just could have watched them just like giving each other shit. Yeah. Like, I don't know, Crockett and Bowie Stern are dead at something. I don't know. Like, they were just so much more interesting to me than what was trying to be um, an updated history lesson or this sort of giant epic canvas that I think is, I mean, that's how movies are sold that come out in the summertime. Mm -hmm. I understand that, that they're not interested in like an indie picture about the last hours of David Crockett, but I would way rather see that then 
then undisciplined John Lee Hancock joint that once again is <laughs> bleeding up to 140 minutes. Like, come on, guy. The way that they handle Crockett is, you know, you'll be surprised to note, not historically accurate in the sense that... What? Huh? No. The attack on the Alamo was not a surprise to him. He didn't wind up in Texas because he didn't have anything better to do. And he's like, well, I'm going to reinvent myself out here. Like, what? There's a war going on? Like, you know, this, this was coming for weeks. These tensions had been escalating for months. He's going into it eyes open. But the way that they they write this character is have him basically be so cognizantly less than his mythology that he has to rise to the occasion by dying well to vindicate that mythology. And I think there's a knowing smirk to Dennis Quaid that compared to Billy Bob Thornton here kind of feels like a brash 16-year-old with a Trans Am versus Thornton, who's basically doing the I'm driving a BMW and listening to classical music version of smirking here. Because his character, like the <laughs> the the wry knowingness of Crockett seems to be like his engaging with the fact that this movie is trying to deconstruct mythologies and you have one character who is acutely aware and commenting on his relationship and his identifying himself in tension with this myth and sort of smiling at the, well, don't that beat all of, of winding up on a suicide mission because your press exceeded you. Or because it was a stunt to get reelected. It captures the impending doom and the bittersweetness of it and the, the, the fucked way that poetry and myth work Mm -hmm. without like, he's not kidding on it. He's not winking at it, but he's definitely knowingly engaged in it. And like the, here, this script helps like, because he winds up being sort of an entree to the greater theme, but like how Billy Bob Thornton does that is so much better than how the movie does it. Yeah. That I'm, I'm wholly with you. Like they could have had him having a conversation with pretty much anybody in that fort. And I would have been like, run it. You know, when you get to the 100 minute mark, cut print. Mm-hmm. Even that coda that didn't happen about his good death. Mm. He played that exactly <laughs> right. I'm dying as a man, but the myth can live on in this way. I mean, I don't know. I, I thought he did a good job. But when you first started talking about this, I thought maybe when you were talking about smirking, I thought maybe you were going to suggest that they should have flipped the casting. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so either. Quaid just doesn't have that that fine motor control on his instrument that way. I mean, I don't know. Billy Bob manages to spend two hours playing a larger-than-life character without raising his voice, which I don't think Dennis Quaid could have gotten through like a dependent clause without doing. Um, I agree, but his Doc Holliday suggests to me that this is not impossible or wasn't always impossible, I think, by 10 years later. Yeah. It was probably impossible. And just the just the way the accent is still ricocheting off all these walls that are in Shreveport. Like, dude, you were born in Houston and you are playing Sam Houston. Yeah. Why do you sound <laughs> why do you sound like you're from Virginia? I don't understand. Okay, we'll we'll get to it. <laughs> Dennis, with respect, Houston's a way of life there. Apparently not. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I, I feel like we want to migrate into talking about the Quaid qua Quaid. But before we do that, we need to rate the movie, I think. Um, we do. And I, as I sometimes do when I'm concerned that um, you're going to hate something and drag my rating down. 
<laughs> I, I wrote it down so that it would have the force of law, but I'm still going to make you go first. Okay. I'm going to hit you with a little bit of my essay though, because I think it will explain kind of where I got frustrated uh, with this movie a little bit better than my just sort of ranting about history. Specifically, like, I think this movie has a disease that liberalism uh, in America has a lot, which is, you know, that the status quo of any given topic or issue is bad. But you don't really have the volition to challenge it. So what you want to do is you want to arrive back at your priors after looking like you struggled a little bit. And uh, that's how I feel about this movie. So um, <laughs> like it, it works as very good sort of revisionist, but very elementary history. Mm -hmm. and, but ultimately, it doesn't really have a moral core. And the movie doesn't have any stakes except for people who are already committed to the myth it's trying to demythologize. Like the tension comes from, I think, wanting to buy into the story that you've heard, watching gripped as it turns out the story is more complicated. But in the process, it winds up telling a story that is only worth exploring, you know, like in terms of going down this universally known path. But then it lacks the courage to to spend some of that built in capital of you already being invested in it. So ultimately it proposes and it really doesn't challenge anything because it's so worried about being objectionable in sort of that broad Hollywood way that it's crafted to give you the same nothingness. It impeaches its most famous characters only a little bit in ways that seem tokenized and half-hearted. And whatever flirtations at political or historical correctness it offers, they're immediately undermined by a scene like having a Mexican character scowl at a black man who's leaving the fort because it's implied that he lacks the courage to die for imperialist slavers. Like, you idiot, you chicken shit, where are you going? <laughs> at heart, the movie aspires to be kind of like a featureless sphere of reconsideration, right? No human hands or fingernails can gain purchase on it. It can only achieve its wholeness of purpose by being sort of untouchable. This is the total text and you need no more. And it winds up producing a movie that's kind of like a five-part South Park episode that has no jokes in it, right? <laughs> you have a cast of idiots doing something that's kind of beneath contempt. But the truth of whether any of these assholes is good or bad is somewhere in the middle. The uh, the blood produced by these people's ultimate slaughter has been used to sanctify no small number of mortal American obscenity. But this movie goes on the damn list with them. It presupposes that everyone watching this accepts that those who died at the Alamo were more complex than their heroically good pop culture conception. They were merely humbly good in spite of being slavers or simply people who would kill another person on behalf of them. And appearing complicated and troubled, but basically exactly the way you expected, is sort of the quaffably intelligent, sophisticated take that one should have. You don't have to make anyone feel bad, but you can feel good because you thought for about five or maybe even ten minutes about whether you should before deciding that shame and accountability were something that you could skip. And ultimately, I think that you can skip the movie, too. That said, <laughs> I know exactly what it's trying to be, you know, which is like, kind of a like a highbrow stab at a middle of the road epic and you know in terms of trying to be that five out of ten hmm. it goes down the middle like there are some things it does very well it just it it trips itself up steps on its own dick however you want to uh to analogize it it gets in its own way too much uh which is too bad because you can tell like we, we've said there are bits where shit you were doing something good there guys yeah yeah, and Patrick Wilson, again, 1.5 dimensions, but nobody plays this particular guy as well as this particular guy, so... Yeah. Um, but I had it at a six, because I think that the 
I mean, my frustrations with it were more construction than education. (laughs) But uh, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. The featureless sphere note is spot on. But I also kind of think that since we're currently in the um, brass age of prestige reimaginings of old stories coming in at eight to ten hours, my patience for stories that don't just shave off a section of themselves to stand for a larger whole that we all either already know or already think we know, like, just tell the small story, please. Mm. That said, Billy Bob Thornton is great here. This, I think, got absolutely zero awards consideration, and that's kind of a shame. He bails out a lot of this shit. For me, so I'm going with a six. Okay, we've been hovering around Dennis, so let's go to Dennis. It's Quaid qua Quaid. Let's talk about the quaidity of Dennis's performance here. You started hitting on something, talking about Wyatt Earp. Like, I feel like this is very much a step back for him. I mean, even relative to just the movies that we've seen recently from him. Yeah. And I don't know if that's supposedly the Sam Houston role got cut down significantly when Russell Crowe detached himself from the project to go oh, make Master and Commander. Yes, I, I suppose we should mention. <laughs> well, look, Master and Commander is a fucking great movie. It actually is. I liked it a lot. So I am completely okay with that happening. Mm-hmm. But I, I almost feel like Quaid got offered a script and said, yeah, and then showed up and it was 20 pages shorter and he looked more like a, you know, a jackass And he just sort of said, like, well, this guy's kind of a drunk who rolls out of bed late. And what if I approach the job that way, too? Yeah, I can do that. Um, He seems very uncomfortable with the idea that Sam Houston is not um, an, an unalloyed historical hero and doesn't seem able to settle on a way to convey that. And also doesn't seem able to commit to this, you know, C plus person. Mm -hmm. So he keeps cheating it or like trying to play it for laughs, at least in the early going. And then in the late going, when uh, this sentry is like, you got to quit running or you're going to lose your troops. And he's like, but there's a plan. And uh, I cut this clip of this sequence that we've referred to in the uh, before about Napoleon and Wellington and all this and him kind of coming into the field and realizing he's found his spot. This famously visual medium of podcasting, we won't be able to see that part of it where he's actually good. But This is a pretty long clip that I wanted us to hear all of because it's like he's figuring out in the middle of it how he's supposed to play this part. So here's clip three. Twenty odd years ago, Napoleon returns from exile in Elba, puts together an army and moves east swiftly before an alliance of nations can occur. Wellington, the fewer men, fewer armaments stays one step ahead of the French, teasing them with his presence, knowing that a large army will have to splinter to keep up. He moves and waits, moves and waits for Napoleon to make a mistake, to fall into a scenario that condemns him to defeat. Wellington chooses a setting for victory. Before it exists for him, before he lays eyes on it, it has an open battleground, a sloping plain, 
cover for encampment and an opportunity to flank the enemy. I mean, this is not good work. There's four different states represented accent-wise, none of which is Texas. Yep. He seems to have this idea. This clip is a minute long. He seems to have the idea like 35 seconds into it that he's like, you know what I should do is just channel Barry Corbin. And he does it for like seven seconds and then he bounces <laughs> off of it again. And I was like, no, no, that's what you should do. Cor- Corbin could do this. Corbin is perfect for this. I'm like picturing him in Crystal Palace and War Games, like get to your inner Corbin. You can do this. He doesn't do it. Yeah, no, I do have a quibble about Quaid. I, I will just point out, like, yes, Wellington had fewer men. He also had 50,000 Prussians. Mm, so, yeah. Mm. But yeah, the, these moments at the end where he's surveying the ground seems to be when he kicks up the uh, Dennis Quaid discomfort face to a gear I hadn't seen before. I mean, he has a, a rictus that looks like he's having like a suppressed orgasm, a stroke, a sciatic pinch all at once, and he's still trying not <laughs> to lose his bowels. Trying to pass the bone sideways. Yeah, no good. I mean, it's not pleasurable, and it. All, I mean, there there are bits where he almost looks like he's mocking someone else, like off screen, who's standing weird, yeah. like he's just doing an impression of some guy to own him from on camera. I mean, it almost looks derisive rather than um, something that the character is doing because it is something of himself, and I feel like. The biggest missed opportunity here as a through line from the beginning to the end is you've got a guy who's essentially a salesman. He's trying to get people to come and enlist, become a territorial in Texas, and you'll get X number of acres. He's trying to sell Texas to people, and he's also trying to sell the viability of himself as a commander and, you know, ultimately independence. And so the tension of the character is you've got a a salesman who knows that he doesn't have the goods to deliver, but he's still trying to get people to buy and then slowly, you know, evolving into the person who can deliver them. And so Quaid is good at that. You know, he's good at being kind of a, you know, a smarmy, you know, like a, a little white liar. But instead, it's, you know, like you said, almost farcical and comic to start. And then it's just constipated and aggrieved at, at his moment of incipient triumph uh, you know yeah just choices all askew to what um you know what the the plot affords him in creating the character i mean it's it's almost like he's running from the interpretation that would play to his strengths and also to you know this truncated version of houston that wound up in this script yeah you see this also in uh scenes early in the movie where he's like been rehearsing his snake oil pitch basically mm-hmm. And then he uses it. <laughs> it's on. like Luca Brazzi, right? It's like Don Corleone. Uh, may that child be a masculine child. Tons uh, <clears throat> <laughs> of whiskey. And then, like, I don't know how you would buy Texas from the guy at the bar talking to himself. <laughs> no. N- yeah, no. And then he's doing the pitch on Crockett. And it's sort of fascinating because you have what's literally on the page, which is that you can't, you know, bullshit a bullshitter. But there's the fact that Crockett knows basically that he's a bullshitter. And I don't think Houston really understands that he's only a bullshitter. Like he has no skills to back up the myth. But then there's also on the meta level, these two actors where it's like, if you flipped them, Thornton could handle this cock of the walk bluster that Houston is going for, that Quaid is going for with Houston, but there's absolutely no way that Quaid could dimensionalize Crockett at all, Yeah, if that makes any sense. So it's like, it's operating on two levels in which Quaid is just not that great. 
And Thornton's like, this is fine. I'm wearing a wig. When do we eat lunch? <laughs> like, I don't know. No, that, that scene absolutely has, or at least Billy Bob Thornton in that scene absolutely has the, I know what you're doing expression mm -hmm. through all of it. That he's like, I'll just, I'll just let this play out. Nothing's going to happen, but sure, let's run through the whole thing and then I'll have some notes. <laughs> and then, oh boy, like here's this big rallying cry for this battle that takes 18 minutes and like we have to see the prep for it in real time, apparently in this um, post Alamo coda. This horse is not fucking having it. And the more the horse is acting up, the more he sounds like he's gargling with broken glass. Get ready to drink. You will remember this battle. Remember each minute of it. Each second. Till the day that you die. That is for tomorrow, gentlemen. For today. Remember the Alamo! Also, the whole crowd, like, missed their cue. <laughs> He's like, remember the Alamo? And they're like, wait, it, now? Oh, we cheer now? I mean, it's a movie called The Alamo. You have to get that scene right. You can give a speech at the end of the battle when you sound like that, but I don't know as if I want to hear anybody sounding like that at the start of the battle, yeah. right? That's Maybe he didn't get a note that it was Jason Patrick who was playing the tubercular guy, but it is so... Welcome to Santa Shinto, baby. You're gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And then there's absolutely not a Chiron that's like following this 18-minute battle. Sam Houston passed a kidney stone the size of a softball. It remains in a jar at the Alamo Museum, all of whose collectibles are owned by Mr. Phil Collins. Yes, that one because it's true. And we'll have a link in the show notes. Texas Monthly had a whole cover story about this recently that Phil Collins and the, you know, the Alamo National Park, whatever, are in a fight. Oh, really? Yeah. Phil Collins owns like millions, plural, of dollars worth of Alamoabilia. The English are real good at that. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, do, do you have some antiquities? Well, they're not here. <laughs> I mean... They're in Kensington. <laughs> they are. You know, we're talking about uh, his performance here, but we're going to have to actually put a number rating on it. Um, the problem here is that he's not in it a lot. He's mm. in it as like kind of a bracketing character. And then we dip in for a little bit of him in the middle of the movie. But we otherwise just sort of let him go for about an hour and a half. Yeah. There's really nothing about the character as he's playing it that is particularly quady. No, even though the character itself does have, at least at the start, like a little bit of rascaliness mm -hmm. that would play well to Quaid. Um, and then, yeah, at, at the end, I mean, there is something that is iconically Quaid. There is some gastrointestinal distress uh, mm -hmm. uh, eructations from him. But um, I don't, you know, ugh, it's tough. Yeah. And does this character fuck um, based on the fact that he, in some scenes, has been styled to look like Eunice from Mama's Family? No, don't think he does. Um, it's, uh, yeah. There's a song about this. It's called Too Drunk to Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> there's a bunch of songs about that, and I bet he's sung them all to an audience. I hope we never find out. Yeah, he's not that quady. He's not that good. He's not in it that much. There are a couple of classic Remy blocking stance 
moments and he's drinking a lot of brown liquor. But other than that, this is off brand and off base. So I'm going to say three and a half. I was going to go with three. I felt like really the only moment that you saw the flicker of Quaid coming through is when he recumbently receives Santa Ana's surrender of the entirety of Texas. And there's this sort of like languid, you know, like, ah, magnolias kind of uh, satisfaction (laughs) to it. He's got the pouty arms pyramid posture again. He has the the pouty mouth that um, is trying to be, I think, drawn and severe or confident and instead is just pouty. Yeah. Sam the Eagle is being sexually harassed. Yeah. So just a three. That's plenty. Next time on Quaid in Full, the day after tomorrow. But really, like, six days after tomorrow, because, well, you get it. It's a a calendar thing. In the meantime, put down those Celtic woodwinds and check out the show notes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod and get even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Quaid in Full. Quaid in Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? Make like the Duke of Wellington and go sign up on whatever good ground you find your podcasts and rate and review Quaid in Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Smooth. If it doesn't burn going down, how can you be sure it's bad for you? (laughs) 